Okay, maybe in the interest of time and as folks start to funnel in, I'm going to kick this off. I am Jack Meehan, the Life Science Tools and Diagnostics Analyst here at Nephron Research. Uh, today we are hosting a expert update focused on the bioprocessing end market, the CDMOs, also gene therapy manufacturing. Um, it's obviously been a very hot topic for our coverage with a number of moving parts. Uh, and so thought it would be helpful to bring in two uh, great and unique perspectives uh, to weigh in on the big debates. Uh, first is a returning guest, which is Brian Tam. Uh, he's a biotechnology consultant at Pelegrin Bio. Um, previously, he was director of project management at Novavax, um, also has experience at GSK and Lanza. Uh, focus more on traditional bioprocessing and CDMOs, uh, so we'll have a lot to touch on there. Um, in addition, we're joined by Brian Duber. He's currently the Senior Director of Business Development and Partnerships and Strategic Partnerships in Andalin Biosciences. Um, he has a lot of CDMO experience, um, uh, involved with Paragon, Paragon Bio, which sold to Catalan. Um, also has experience at Johns Hopkins and Morgan Stanley. Um, so we have a lot of ground we're going to cover over the next hour. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to email me at jack.nephronresearch.com. I'm happy to ask on your behalf, uh, or you can raise your hand, and I'll try and address that way as well. And so with that, let's um, maybe just um, for the audience members, um, for Brian and Brian, it would be great to start just by providing your maybe just a little bit more on your background and uh, the types of companies that you work with. You don't have to name names, but just like the type of work that you do in biologics manufacturing, the way that groundwork. Um, and we'll start with Brian Tam. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Um, and thanks for having me back again. really love uh, getting to be a part mm -hmm. of these calls. Um, you know, for those the audience, um, I am a biotech lifer. I got uh, into the industry uh, right around the turn of the century with Lanza Biologics, and uh, where I worked in post development manufacturing roles there. Um, you know, made, made my way through to uh, work for some innovative companies, including Human Genome Sciences, Laxis and Klein, and Novavax before uh, hanging out at Shingle uh, with my own consultancy about five years ago. Um, yeah, I. Uh, I work sort of broad spectrum and CMC generalist across uh, all major product modalities. Uh, companies at very different stages of development from the very small virtual startups right up to companies who are you know, supporting through their uh, BLA filings and into commercialization. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Great. And uh, Brian Duber, what else would you uh, share on your background and just experience in the field? Yeah, so uh, I, I started off in, in the lab. Um, back at, at Hopkins Purifying Viruses, and then I moved over to the, the CDMO industry, right, uh, kind, of, kind of around the, the time when people were starting to think about uh, CMC and, and gene therapy, specifically with AAD. Uh, I moved up to business development um, and, and got a lot of experience with a number of clients, uh, especially early on in the, the Paragon days. I stayed on with the company until 2021 when I moved out and, and started doing some consulting work uh, across biologics in general, uh, but also uh, very, very specifically focusing on, on gene therapy in, in, in certain instances. And then uh, in 2022, I joined uh, Andalin as Senior Director for, for BD, again, focusing on the AADB therapy clients and 
and how to be able to, to deliver these, these therapeutics uh, across a wide range of diseases from rare disease all the way out to the, the more prevalent ones. But happy to be on the call. Mm, great. Okay, let's, um, let's dive into sort of the demand environment for bioprocessing overall. And, you know, when I'm, I guess for the upcoming questions, I'm really referring to like the suppliers of the industry, like the Cytivas uh, and Thermo Fishers and Millipores and Sertoriuses of the world. Um, but at a very high level, like what do you see as the big themes influencing demand uh, for bioprocessing? And I want to leave it a little bit open-ended, and then I think we're going to dive into some of the specifics. But we'll start with Brian Tam. Yeah, I think right now the biggest driver is who has cash to do what. Um, and what what I'm sort of seeing up there is that you have companies which have multiple programs, especially ones that have maybe have a lead program that's in mid to late stage clinical development. They are really um, prioritizing what they think is going to be their best shot at getting to some kind of data readout, some sort of inflection that can drive investment. And that, that manifests as, you know, a company with maybe you know, three, four programs on the go in the pipeline. They're going to put two to three programs on pause, and they are really going hard on one or two programs. Uh, companies that are in you know, very early phase development, they, they, are, they are trying to bootstrap as much as possible. Uh, just trying to be like, hey, what, you know, how far can we push the definition of the phrase phase appropriate, you know, to really get a really trim phase one IND going. For me, those are the two things that I'm really seeing right now in, in those two different categories. Great. And uh, Brian Duber, what would you agree, disagree? No, I, I really uh, agree with what Brian had mentioned. I think a lot of clients are are looking at a different funding landscape than, than the, the prior few years. And what I found is really interesting is uh, you're seeing a lot more non-dilutive funding uh, being able to support a lot more in the industry now. So you're seeing companies that typically would have maybe stayed with the viral vector core or even even some, some material that was developed in a lab, and uh, they're coming out to industry experts to be able to be a little bit more thoughtful on what their CMC strategy is when they do spin the company. So you're seeing academia reaching out to CDMS where you, you traditionally didn't even see that before. Uh, um, and, and very similar to what Brian was saying, uh, a lot of focus mm -hmm. on a lead program. A few years ago, people were, were talking about, oh, look how many, how many shots on goal that I have with my pipeline. But I think what investors had realized is that when you have multiple shots on goal, you have to put something behind them or else they're not going to go very, very far. That could be... Uh, really detrimental to your lead program is if you're if you're funneling uh, time and money to all these different assets and not pushing toward your lead program, then you're going to be moving lots slower than your competitors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So both of your what's interesting is both of your responses kind of focus on the clinical development piece of the picture. Um, you know, a lot of demand for these big suppliers is on the commercial side for um, production. Maybe for Brian, Tam, just curious, like, what is, I don't know if you have any data on this or, like, your feel for what kind of a core commercial piece of production is for biologics. Like, um, are there any positives or negatives that stand out for you there? So that, yeah, the demand there, you know, is, is pretty stable, right? The commercial products are still the commercial products, right? The patient, you know, 
economic hindrance, don't reduce the number of patients who want those approved drugs. What's interesting on that front is that during pandemic, a lot of new capacity was built and came online. And now, you know, uh, developers who have a high demand commercial product, they actually have some options for second suppliers, third suppliers of, uh, of their of their products because um, there's there's some high capacity out there. And uh, when it comes to manufacturing, like there's if if a company is willing to put the effort into like the tech transfer to stand up a new site, those options are definitely there for them right now. Yeah, and uh, you're referring more to like CDMO second or third suppliers versus like specking in a Sartorius or a Repligent or somebody into the process or what did you what were you referring to? So generally, yes, CDMOs who have maybe overbuilt in mm-hmm. that sort of pandemic era exuberance, right? Those there's there's some there's high capacity there, but um, also I, I think there is some internal there is some internal capacity that um, you know that the innovators maybe have available that has been like you know less than efficiently utilized. Mm-hmm. Um, with where the you know the, the buyer build decision, I think in in the in the past it might be very easy. Hey, let's just go out and outsource. But again, everybody's a little cash conscious now, and that includes the big suppliers. And there mm-hmm. is a little bit of of look at hey, should we maybe be retrofitting, you know, this old manufacturing suite for something that's you know, moves the needle for us a little more than what it happens to be doing right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that all makes sense. So, like, the actual, it, it would make sense that the underlying kind of, like, core commercial demand is pretty stable, but, you know, maybe there's some supply demand just related to COVID that's still working its way, that's creating a little bit of noise. Um, yeah. I, sorry, one exception there. Ozempic. Mm-hmm. Ozempic is obviously blowing up, and, you know, my, my understanding is, you know, no one orders would flow to keep the manufacturing internal, what they, their preference would be to maintain control over that, you know, API supply chain, but the, the demand is, uh, it's, it's so far exceeded expectations mm-hmm. that they are having to look outside to, in, you know, to a level that I, I don't think they had necessarily envisioned. Yeah. Yeah. We'll come back to that in a moment. That seems like a huge driver. Um, okay, so back on the clinical side, um, you know, some of these sort of funding or recessionary factors that you're seeing, how does that actually impact the purchasing of supplies? Is it that, like, do you think that will represent a headwind to purchasing next year? Uh, maybe start with Brian Tam, then Brian Duber. I, I think that it's an impact. Uh, mainly as Kind of mentioned before, it impacts on mainly the number of programs that are getting greenlit. Um, okay. Or you know the kind of per program spend, the, the manufacturing platforms are the manufacturing platforms, so that that I think will be about the same. Um, I, I think people are paranoid enough about the uh, supply chain issues that were experienced during the pandemic that nobody's going to try to run too lean on on material inventory. So. Yeah, I think it's really going to be is the number of programs that get the green light as opposed to the, you know, program mm-hmm. design. Got it. Okay, and then uh, Brian Duber. So, 
within the space that I operate, which is mainly going to be in the cell and gene therapy area, a lot of the supply chain is still focused on single-use materials. And most of those single-use materials are going to be very, very product-specific. I mean, you're going to have, like, bioreactor bags and things like that that aren't necessarily intuitively product-specific, but sometimes you might need to have extra sampling boards or, or whatever that's added on to where it's a little bit more of a customized option. So the one-size-fits-all or platform approach from a, C, uh, from a CDMO standpoint isn't necessarily what you see in practice, uh, especially as you go from upstream down to, to um, down to the downstream processes and then mm-hmm. Goes really, really specific with your affinity chromatography columns that are available now, um, and then going into IEX, or if you're going to be utilizing some sort of ultracentrifugation step, um, it, it can be really, really kind of bespoke. And I think it's really important then to actually form a partnership with your CDMO if you're utilizing an outsource vendor for your your CMC to be able to to allow them to be able to to order in time to ensure that there aren't any rushes. Because that's going to impact uh, your program uh, down the road. If you if you wait on on uh, picking a supplier, then you need a rush order for your toxicology. Uh, you could be you could be asking the, the CDMO to be doing a lot of a lot of extra work uh, that typically requires a significant amount of planning that helps de-risk the program, and that's when you can, you can run into hiccups. So I think that mm-hmm. that's that, that's the main thing is just to communicate early and often so that the CDMOs can plan for the correct supply for when the client's program needs those specific materials, not necessarily to, to bulk order GMP resin when they're doing feasibility studies, but to ensure when they need to place an order and, and when that timeline is going to hit. Great. That makes sense. Um, I had one follow-up already come in the email, um, maybe for Brian Tam, just curious, and I, I, maybe I could check my own notes to see what you said a few months ago, but just this a dynamic of biotech cash conservation program rationalization, how does that compare to, like, what you were seeing three months ago? So I think that the cash conservation has actually become more intense I think people were really hoping things would turn around in the fourth quarter of 2023 on like a macro level, and it did. And so companies who were sort of holding fast to an optimistic worldview of how 2023 was going to go, their assumptions did hold. And, you know, I think you've seen in the news, right, there have been some companies that have had some rounds of layoffs in the past few months, and I think that's what we're seeing there. And... So there's been this sort of like shakeout of, of for companies where they, they were just a little too optimistic. Um, and companies who have maybe been a little more pessimistic or realistic, you know, they, they they've sort of, you know, been validated in that in that stance. And they're maybe set up to maybe have a little bit of a smoother entry into twenty twenty four. I think that's that's been the main thing that I've seen. Okay. That's helpful. Okay, let's talk about some of these like potential blockbuster categories for 2024. Um, I want to start with GLP-1s. I'm going to focus that on to Brian Tam and then gene therapy for Brian uh, Duber. Let's start with GLP-1s. So, uh, Brian, you brought up Brian Tam. You brought up earlier Ozempic. You know, there's been a lot of attention on these GLP-1s. Um, in maybe like a minute or two, like explain how the manufacturing process works and just is there a way to frame what the economics could look 
like for the suppliers here? Yeah, so, um, you know, Ozempic, it's a uh, relatively small peptide, you know, it's like 30 amino acids or so. Um, you know, there are, it's looking at the manufacturing, you, you could you can do this as, you know, liquid phase or solid state, you know, synthesis. You could also express it in, in a biologic system. And uh, if you're, one thing I've seen is generic manufacturers are lining up to try to figure out how they want to approach manufacturing like a generic version of Ozempic. Because that, you know, it's it's going, it's not a super complicated molecule. It's definitely a molecule that can be you know, synthesized uh, very economically. And, you know, the especially if you're, you know, going to go the chemical synthesis route, you know, it's going to be, you know, amino acids, uh, some catalysts, maybe, uh, you know, because, um, maybe like a, a resin scaffold, it's going to be pretty straightforward uh, to, you know, to, to be able to build that molecule out. Even, and even if you go the biologics route, um, the, you know, you probably grow that at pretty high titer in a, in, in a cell culture uh, system, maybe even a yeast system if you can get the uh, post-translation modifications right. Um, and given the demand, I think like, you know, these are potentially something that would be made in very large batches to achieve economies of scale. So it could potentially be a thing that would be a, a lot of media, a lot of filters. Um, it's, it's a big enough demand that this is something that, you know, is it the most economic way to make? It might be in a big stainless steel facility. So it might not create a huge demand for like single use bags and stuff, but yeah, I guess it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's potentially, a, it, it's going to, it's it's going to register on the industry at, at the macro level as, as it continues to develop and grow. Yeah. Is there um is there a way to frame like cost per dose? Um, you know, if say they go the synthesis route, which is the more economically uh the more economical way of manufacturing it, like is there a way to frame like, you know, dollars, you know, in bioprocessing supplies that, that equates to? Um, that's a great question. And obviously, I don't have, I haven't had a lot of visibility on the cost of goods for Ozempic, right? Mm -hmm. That's definitely something people are keeping close to their chest. But I mean, I, looking at the, you know, the, the price at the patient end, you know, I think, uh, you know, one month supply is like about a thousand bucks. Uh, you know, domestically in mm -hmm. Europe, I think it's like maybe a hundred bucks. The fact that they can discount like 90% to get into mm -hmm. the EU, that, that tells you something about what the cost of goods probably are. Mm -hmm. like, I, I, I think I think, the, I think the cost of goods for Ozempic is really low and is like, right, they can really that kind of drop in the bucket thing that, you know, all the farmers and the dream guys dream about, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And then assuming these volume forecasts are right, like, is this going to place a significant burden on the fill finish capacity? Like, who who do you think could actually benefit from this? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I think, you know, Noble Nordisk's internal manufacturing capacity is slammed. So whomever has big, commercial lines available is is 
chance to maybe get some really big partnerships. I think they had something with Thermo Fisher in the news recently. And, and yeah, I mean, Thermo Fisher, they have two really big fill finish plants in Italy. The Almanza and Ferentino have big commercial lines, fully staffed, audited, good audit history. You know, it's the kind that when I saw it, I thought, I'm pretty sure it was them I saw on the news. That, that made perfect sense to me. I think they're a very logical potential partner. Mm-hmm. But any of the big bills, bill folks, right, better, that the feathers of the world, the batches of the world, you know, they, they should all be in the mix. If they're not in the mix, they're probably doing something wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Catalan has a few lines. It's also, you know, they've had some self-inflicted wounds, but um, it seems like it, if they can get it right, it's a big opportunity. For sure. Okay, and then let's move to gene therapy um, for Brian Buber. Just like I know you're pretty passionate about um, the world of gene therapy, which is why I thought it would be helpful to have you come on and talk about it. But just like this Sarepta upcoming, you know, decision from the FDA after Embark, like how important is this, you know, for the industry? Do you have a sense for how it's going to go? Yeah, I mean, I think that the industry has been looking for more and more indications to, to come on and to have positive read-throughs through the clinic uh, and to, to see the approvals has definitely been a huge importance for the field in general uh, because there aren't that many drugs that are available and for a lot of these drug makers to, to get into the field, they need to be able to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think Sarepta kind of helped bring that to uh, a lot of people's uh, eye. I think that the Avexis and, and Novartis with Zolgensma was was a really impactful thing as well in, in Spark and Luxterna, but I think that the, the Sarepta opportunity has, has really opened up the field to a lot more folks than what, uh, what, than the, the people that were around back in 2019, 2018, which I think is, is really, really important. Having said that, it, it's a lot more crucial now to have positive read-throughs uh, through the clinic, and that means having a really, really uh, lockdown CNC strategy, making sure that you're not kind of uh, just stumbling through the clinic the way that that might have been okay uh, a few years, a few years ago. Now having a strategy put together for how to address these questions, because it's one thing if you're if you're forging the path and and they're they're not being kind of in. A, a way forward, and everybody's kind of learning at the same same pace. But if there's already a few products that are already on the market, the new gene therapy uh, innovators are going to have to really understand what they're talking about. And it's not necessarily a learning a learning process for the regulators and the innovators like it was mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. How do you stack up Catalyst and Paragon's capabilities relative to? Thermo and Brammer. Is there a reason? Why do you think Sarepta has gone the route with the with the former? Yeah. So the thing with any CDMO is uh, when you scale, you can't keep all of your resources in the same same area, right? So Catalan, when they acquired Aragon, all of the resources because it was still a relatively small CDMO, were in Maryland. I think that really de-risks a significant amount of uh, potential issues that you would see when you're outsourcing to a CDMO. Uh, the, the problem with Brammer that we saw earlier this year is that 
uh, when you have two different sites and one of the sites is a little outdated, you're probably going to want to get rid of it uh, when you're a larger CDMO. And the issue is that then you get rid of the people that were there. And I think that that's the biggest thing in this industry for a, a therapeutic or a modality that's on such a bleeding edge of, of uh, technology is that you need the people more than you need the shiny new facility. And I think that Thermo kind of lost track of that, and that's why Catalan was able to uh, do significantly mm-hmm. better compared to Thermo is because they retain a lot of that talent, and they can be resourceful and pull from other sites and being able to, to work with, with clients. And it's a snowball uh, in this field where a lot of people want to work with people that have or work. A lot of innovators want to work with CDMOs that have already done it. And when you work with more clients and you've done more and you get you, – you, you kind of tend to accelerate at a faster pace in the, in the short term, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's maybe can you just walk us through the economics? Like, is it possible to quantify, like, a cost per dose, you know, in the case of Sarepta, like, what that could mean for Catalan? Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've seen a couple, a couple reports out there that have done a really good job of quantifying cost per dose. Um, Per, per indication, obviously the ocular indications, you're going to see a cost per dose at significantly less, whereas the cost per dose for something like DMT is going to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, it's just, it's a really, really expensive process to run. Um, they're right now in an ISL is 500, which it, you scaled up from an adherent process in hyperstacks or, or, or whatever, but the the, then you're, you're kind of limited to that 500 meter square donut that's in the ISLs, and, and then you have to scale out, so running multiples of those to be able to serve uh, a, a few patients at a time. I think it's, it's kind of, um, it's really important to get the drug on the market, and that was the best that was available, honestly. It was, it was significantly uh, better than, than uh, a lot of the other projections that other organizations would have been able to do, like if, if somebody, I'm sure somebody pitched Sarepta to do it in, in roller bottles. Um, and that was just not not feasible for, for this type of a drug. Um, having said that, like and like I mentioned earlier, people that are innovators that are getting into the field now need to figure out for their patient populations how to make it even more economical um, because we can't have four or $5 million drugs um, for all these, these, these rare disease indications, eventually you need to see a trend downward for the cost per dose for the patient to be significantly cheaper while the margins for the CDMOs can be, I mean, honestly, they could improve. Um, we just need to adopt uh, better, better uh, manufacturing uh, methodologies from, from monoclonal antibodies to where you can really commoditize the manufacturing instead of just doing everything really, really, um, in an academic process at the end of the day, which, you, which is what you see now. Yeah. That all makes sense. Yeah, it's still very, you know, despite the field being around for some time, feels like still kind of in the first or second inning in terms of figuring these things out. So a little bit of trial and error. Okay, so let's, we're now about halfway through the call. Um I wanted to talk about inventory levels at customers. Uh, you know, I think over the last year, this has been topic one, two, three, as it pertains to bioprocessing. And um, 
you know, feels, and maybe it's appropriate that we're starting at the halfway mark to talk about this. Um, let's start with Brian Tim. You know, many of the large suppliers, you know, they really increased their capacity in 2021, 2022. Can you just talk about, like, where you think supply versus demand stands today? Like, just how has that shifted? Yeah, I I, I think the industry overbuilt. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think what we're seeing is obviously during pandemic, there was a big, big burst in that capacity and, and, we're, and, and, and demand, but now that demand is regressed and, you know, you can't downsize that capacity, um, you know, and uh, I, we're, we're kind of getting back to sort of right sizing, right, the demand. But the supply is the supply now, and it's. I think it's going to be a little while before the demand picks up to take that slack of the supply. Um, I'd say the the one thing that maybe helps is that you know at least in the sort of U.S. and EU lens, is that there is a lot of geographic risk out there now. So you know capacity in Asia Pacific is maybe not being considered as an option in the same way that it was before. So excess capacity, what looks to be excess capacity now in North America and Europe, that's probably got a reasonable shot of getting uh, getting getting filled up in the in the next while. But for for the time being I think uh, I think there are gonna be some very shiny, very nice looking manufacturing suites that are going to be pretty empty. Yeah. Maybe just on the flip side of that, like, um, how aggressive are you seeing some of the Chinese, you know, or Asian CDMOs at the market? I think we saw Wuji Biologics headline yesterday or on Sunday. Um, but do you think that becomes a problem at some point? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Chinese CDMOs have got to hustle. You know, Wuji is a special case. Wuji is a special case because they – they they have a track record of people. They have like an existing customer base, uh, many of which think Wuxi is a pretty good CDMO. So they 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 ain't got have a leg up. Mm-hmm. All the other all the other Chinese CDMOs are just I, you know, I had a conversation with uh, an executive at at a China based CDMO who have like hundreds of thousands of liters of fiber capacity they're trying to fill, and and they were kind of asking me, like, hey, can you help us, you know, get these and fill it? Like, I mean, I can try, but, like, just good luck, buddy. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I just, because just really, really tough task for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe similar questions for uh, Brian Duber. It, just, like, your thoughts on this dynamic of supply and demand right now for the bioprocessing suppliers, like, have you, have you come across a lot of inventory stocking in your travels? Yeah. So, I mean, from from a supply for the technology, I think that the, the bioreactors and the resins and things like that, the lead times haven't really improved that much. I think that the ordering for being able to get the materials in to do the manufacturing, uh, people are, are, are looking at more innovative ways to, to be able to have uh, – steady supply so that when clients come around that we're able to action uh, pr- pretty readily. So that's that's maybe not ordering 10 bioreactor bags in the month of January, but saying that we need one bioreactor bag 
every month for the, the, the next 10, 10 months. Things like that, I think could be beneficial. I think could be beneficial um, and have proved to um, and, and have proved to be a little bit more. Um, from a visibility standpoint, I would love the clients to say like, hey, like I would give you all, all, the, all the, the business for the upcoming GDP program right away. But at the end of the day, I know that most clients aren't going to necessarily going to sign all their GMP lots up into, up until commercial uh, for the next five years. And I think just having a better idea of what the, the, current, uh, the current demand looks like and being able to map it out is really important. Having, having said that on the, 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 the technology side, um, on the, the, the actual capacity, like filling up the GMP suites, I think a little bit of the issue that we've seen in the gene therapy, so the gene therapy area is, is twofold. Number one, a lot of the people that have built capacity, it's not necessarily the capable capacity that the industry needs, right? Like you can build a GMP suite, you can go get a GCon suite and build it up and then, and then do your IQ to OQP, Q for everything. But then you need to train people and then more importantly, retain people. And if you can't do that, then you're going to be wasting a lot of money hiring and then rehiring and training and Odds are, if you're a gene therapy company these days, you're not necessarily focusing on 10 different therapeutics all at one time that need GMP manufacturing, and in which case, you don't really need your in-house capacity for GMP manufacturing because you're only going to be manufacturing maybe about one month a year, mm. and it costs a lot to keep these lights on. I mean, a, facility, a GMP facility at, at a reasonable size, uh, size, it can cost about a million dollars just for your electric bill, and I think that that is absolutely crazy that some people think well we'll save some money by building our own capacity when you only have uh, maybe even a half dozen therapeutics that are all preclinical because you're not going to be utilizing that facility and that million dollar electric bill could go to your tax or in some cases your GMP supply uh, for clinical or your GMP lot for your clinical supply um, and you're not training and retaining uh, or and having that training and retaining uh, issue and you're not reinventing the wheel. You can really lean on some of the CDMOs, not all of them, but some mm -hmm. of the CDMOs for being able to guide you in the, the right way to uh, clinical success, at least from a CMC standpoint. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. Like these smaller, you know, when everybody's cash conscious, you know, and your needs as a small player are probably limited or time constrained, you can. Yeah, it builds the case for outsourcing. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so just um, just want to stick on the topic of like inventory stocking trends. Um, Brian, Tam, like, is there a way to say like pick a category like filters or single use bags? Like, how if you just had to guess or you know your best guess like. How many months of supply do you think are on shelves today? Like, how does that compare to six months ago or a year ago? Like, where are we in this destock cycle? Yeah. So, um, obviously, this is this is a really uh, really popular topic around, and, mm -hmm. and I, I kind of there, there's sort of two categories here, and it has to do with whether or not a site was involved in manufacturing a COVID product that was sort of depassivated, right? That, that would add Defense Production Act priority. Uh, for the sites that did not 
were not involved in in COVID manufacturing. They were really constrained and very, you know, early on. And so they got into, they just had been panic buying, you know, for a while, as much as they could. And they were building up, you know, like a, a year's worth of safety stock, which they have now been able to kind of like draw down a fair bit. And they are very close, I think, to getting back to back to normal, which I would describe as like a calendar quarter of inventory, right? You see like a, a full, you know, purchasing cycle, pencil it might take it might take you twelve weeks to buy a bunch of stuff right now is your standard kind of standard assumption. So I thought a calendar quarter. Mm-hmm. The companies that were making COVID vaccines and were getting like priority deliveries from the Defense Production Act. So that they are still swamped because they were in some cases, you know, sent amounts of filters and bags you know, in such excess of what the actual needs were that they are actually still finding, still finding random pockets of inventory in like hallways and back corners of like, you know, space that isn't exactly warehouse space that they sort of lost track of during pandemic. And they're trying to figure out, well, how do we deal with this now? Because it's, you know, they've got, they just keep sort of finding these extra bits of inventory. They think they're getting better and then they find like more stuff. They're, they're probably, it's probably going to be like for them, maybe into like the middle of 2024 or some of those folks are kind of, have kind of had a chance to dig themselves out from under the COVID chaos. Yeah. And let's say, like, are you seeing examples of it's like, okay, I want to, I have too much inventory. I, I'm just not going to need this. Like, what do you do? Is, yeah, have it, you seen like an active market for used supplies? So not really. What what kind of happens is uh, they'll make a decision of we are just going to take this right down and we're just going to scrap a bunch of this stuff and we'll just throw it to our PD labs and our PD labs can use whatever they want and whatever they don't want to use, we'll probably just throw away. You know, they, there's not a lot, not a lot of, People are trying to monetize sort of scrap inventory bags and filters. That this uh, that that I haven't really seen much of that. Yeah. What about on like the capital equipment side? Like if you bought too many bioreactors. Like, oh, that I see. Yeah, there, there's definitely there's definitely a pretty thriving market for consignment equipment. Um, yeah, and uh, there's this really very lightly used. You know, shiny, shiny bioreactors and you know, filter skids and things that are that are out there. But people need. I, I, you know, I speaking to clients now. Anyone who needs to help their lab, it's maybe the the second thing I ask them. Like, the first thing is like, well, you know, are there suppliers you really like that you use before? And the second thing is, have you thought about buying these used? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, same kind of line of questions for. Uh, Brian Huber, like, uh, do you have a sense, like, just either, like, in-house Vandalin or, like, other, you know, companies you've worked with, like, the level of excess inventory that's out there, like, how has that trended over the last year or so? We don't have too much excess inventory, uh, primarily because we use a lot of single-use materials, and these things expire like bananas. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you if you buy a bunch of bioreactor bags, um, 
do you better sell them within the next year or use them within the next year or else they're going to they're going to be uh, they're going to expire and that can be that can be really really uh, detrimental to to the the bottom line so we try to ensure uh, kind of like what i was saying earlier is interacting with our clients early and often so that we we project the ordering um, so that we get the materials and we're not forcing clients to use expired materials or, or anything like that so it's it's a really thoughtful uh, way to go about it uh, to ensure that we're getting the clients the material that they need without any delays and ensuring that we know the, the process fully so that at the, the 12 hour we're not saying oh we need this resin that has a eight-week late a week uh, lead time from replogen or or uh, it's going to delay a, a, a client till finish program by by not having this vial format or or whatever. So just being really thoughtful and partnering with the clients, I think, is is something that Anderlin does really well. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, one question for both of you, and we'll start with Brian Duber, is just like pricing trends for these bioprocessing supplies. Like it's my just like listening to the suppliers. It's my sense, you know, you have this you know, like kind of crazed buying behavior the last couple of years because of the supply chain constraints and pricing was pretty healthy, you know, at least what the Cytivas and Thermos of the world were able to capture. But like as, you know, demand starts to wane, but supply is still elevated or, you know, before maybe they start pulling back. Like, have you seen any, have you seen pricing start to stabilize at all? Or even are there any areas where you think it could turn negative? Uh, I mean, from my standpoint, I would say that there are some big ticket items that cost a lot of money from um, a manufacturing standpoint. Transfection reagents are, is probably one of the least sexy of those things. A lot of people like to talk about plasmids um, because they're a critical raw, raw material, and that makes sense in a lot of uh, people's minds. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe, like plasmids are expensive, but they're, at the end of the day, they're the therapeutic, right? Transfection reagent, on the other hand, is 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 something where people they their eyes get really big when you're like, all right, well, a liter of it costs a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It's just like a crazy amount of money for these these things that you don't even you don't even think of accounting in your in your cogs when you're you're building this out when you're a biotech company. Um, also, looking at at the cost of different vial formats or the CZ vials can be really, really expensive as well that people don't necessarily think about. And it's often an afterthought for biotech companies. They're, they're always talking about the upstream and the plasmids and the, oh, they might talk about the media a little bit. But then finally, right before they leave, they're like, oh, let's talk about a fill finish plan of action and, and how that looks like. And that could add, that could add a couple extra $100,000 on a, on a, on a program. Right there, I think one of the things that probably drives up the price more than anything else that's variable is going to be your analytical package and the supply for analytics for these next generation therapeutics. Where analytics are are really really crucial in finding phase appropriate analytics uh, for what needs to be qualified for a phase one uh, program first, what needs to be validated for uh, phase three PPQ process. It, 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 a lot of clients need to kind of uh, be educated about what needs to happen, or, or sometimes the CDMOs need to get a little bit of education from the client of what they find to be uh, a low-risk 
uh, process for, for their particular therapeutic. So again, early conversations uh, and often with the, the, your CMC partners is kind of imperative. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, Brian, Tim, any thoughts on like pricing dynamics you're seeing? Oh yeah, I mean pricing, obviously the inflation was very real during the pandemic and price went way up on everything. Um, those prices are not coming down. Uh, they might stabilize, but uh, that's, you know, for, you know, that's that's as low, like, that, that's as much as you're going to get, right? It, it, it <laughs> might stabilize and they might, it might become cheaper when you count, account for the effects of inflation, you know. I but uh, but um, I, there's no incentive for anyone to be uh, lowering prices on supplies, especially because, again, so much outsourcing and so much use of single-use technologies on the CDMO side, those are pass-through costs. There's no incentive for the CDMO to like negotiate too hard on on raw materials, especially if no one else is doing it. Right? I don't see, I, I don't see any CDMO in the marketplace trying to uh, flex their raw material negotiations and buying power as a reason to to as as a competitive element to their mm-hmm. to their offering. And, you know, it, it is, honestly, it does make it difficult when I have clients who are early phase, highly cash constrained, and you're trying to get just like one or two uh, clinical scale batches from a CDMO where it's all single-use technologies, all consumables. It's the sort of bill of materials and cost of goods per batch. You know, it's just, uh, I just kind of, I wince a little when, uh, when I'm, I'm presenting those options because it's like, you have three options. They're all varying degrees of really expensive right now. So mm-hmm. it's it's tough, and I don't see that changing, honestly. Yeah. So why we do include our uh, our materials in the in the price? So yeah, well, it, it, and it, it depends. If it's if it's a, a process that we haven't touched before, if you're tech transferring it, then we'll make some uh, ballpark assumptions on the on the first program. But if you're using more or less uh, the process that that we typically use you'll see the materials included in, in the price. So for us, what I would say when a client comes to me and they, they want to go 2,000 liter batch, I'll say, all right, let's, let's pump, pump the brakes a little bit. How much vector do you actually need? And if you want to do a little bit of optimization on the front end, we can optimize on plasmids. We could optimize on the upstream production and transfection ratios or plasmid ratios there. Uh, or we could optimize on the downstream purification. We can pull any one of those levers, and we might be able to reduce the amount of material that you need for your clinical batches to a 200 liter, in which case you save a significant amount of money on your plasmids because you're not getting economies of scale. A 2,000 liter is not equivalent to Costco to where you're, you're shopping in a bodega with a 50 liter. It, it doesn't, you don't get your, your, your economies, unfortunately, that way. So what I try to suggest to all of our clients is do the little bit of development. It only takes about a month or two to do it, and it significantly improves your, your yields and your cogs down the road, um, in which case you, you can have a much more marketable therapeutic, and it's, it, it's a lot more – the manufacturability of it goes up significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great that's a great point just to, to build on that. I mean, the you know, there's that pressure, that time to pressure of achieving a time to market goal really 
really is kind of paramount in, in the minds of a lot of innovators right now. And to, to Brian's point, right, there's, I think the value of investing of uh, maybe a little more time in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in the development of uh, the sort of manufacturing economics is maybe a little bit underappreciated right now. I think that's, that's a very great point. For uh, Brian and Tim, one follow-up, just because I know you have experience working with some of these Chinese uh, CDMOs, but if you, I was curious if you've seen the presence of any of the Chinese bioprocessing suppliers increase at all, like the Lapures or Duonings of the world. Um, just any thoughts on them? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, not so much on drug substance and API production as mm-hmm. much as... I think on the field finish side, especially, you know, during the pandemic when you know, kind of the world was running short on like, you know, pharmaceutical glass and, and stoppers, um, there were definitely developers having to look at, you know, alternative vendors for, um, for vials, stoppers, caps, and then and those sorts of, uh, you know, primary container components. Um, and it was really interesting to see, you know, one, one example that does really stick out on my mind is, you know, the client had been using, you know, a West stopper for um, for their early development, and then they couldn't get that stopper, and they, you know, evaluated a, um, a Chinese replacement, and we did the comparability study, and, uh, you know, the Chinese stopper, it was not as good, right? The, the profiles around the testing, it wasn't as good. But it was good enough, um, and it was proceed with it. Uh, so, yeah, there, I think there are there are openings there for for some of these sort of like lesser known, maybe second tier suppliers who, you know, they're not going to be the Cadillac version, but uh, you know, as as more companies have experience with these vendors, they may have opportunities to steal some small slices of the pie from mm-hmm. folks who are maybe uh, more attentive to the price than they might have been yeah. before. Yeah, I think the investor perception is these are probably like regionally constrained to China at the moment, but maybe, you know, in some very special situations or pricing sensitive areas, like you know, maybe they can get a foothold. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's an interesting example. Yeah. No, that's definitely not a huge threat, but maybe something that we need to watch over the next few years. Yeah. Okay, so we have nine minutes left. Wanted to, uh, turn next to the CDMOs. And again, if anybody has any questions, uh, jack at nephronresearch.com. Maybe just high level for you both, you know, outside of the things that we've already touched on, like, are there any other major dynamics you see playing out in 